I had a question on the exam that said, okay, you know, uh, post Keynesians don't believe that there is any you know, limit to how large the, the, the national debt can be, how, how large do they want it to be? And what they're supposed to say is, well, until we hit full employment. And so that is the same as the 32, you know, when you open your car door and you look and it says 32 pounds per square inch is the, mm. is the pressure on your tire. Guess what? That's when you stop. All right. So the, the people who are saying that MMT is going to cause this terrible inflation because they'll keep spending and spending and spending must also have trouble, uh, you know, when they go put air in their tires at <laughs> the gas stations where the, the, the air is free because, well, it's free. Uh, I could do this forever. So, well, no, you idiot. Welcome to Activist MNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Part two in a six-part series with Texas Christian University economics professor and cowboy economist John Harvey. The first three parts are hosted by me, the final three by MNT researcher, Texas lawyer, and my previous guest, Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan and John talk about how MMT can apply to nations outside the US using Russia as an example and also some of the core theoretical and ideological differences between MMTers and mainstream economists, focusing on a recent critique of MMT by Drumetz and Feister. You can hear my own interview with Jonathan in episodes 106 and 107. Today in part two, John and I continue our conversation about his chapter in the upcoming book called Modern Monetary Theory, Key Insights, Leading Thinkers. The book will be published by the UK-based Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies, or GIMS. It's edited by L. Randall Ray and GIMS and is scheduled for a January 2023 release. John is one of 15 authors. His chapter is called Modern Monetary Theory, the UK, and Pound Sterling. It addresses the following criticism of NMT, and this is a quote from the chapter. NMT-inspired policies will cause high rates of price inflation, which will in turn lower the international value of a domestic currency, perhaps catastrophically. This conversation discusses the three major false assumptions underlying this criticism. Surprisingly, however, the main insight I take from this conversation with John is a much clearer understanding of inflation in general. As promised in the intro to part one, here is that insight. Inflation is not a disease or even a symptom. Rather, it's a potential measurement of some problem somewhere. Similarly, a thermometer says you have a fever. A fever means your body is fighting off something. You could take an ice bath to reduce your fever, 
but that will do little, if anything, to cure the underlying sickness. Further, while a thermometer measures something simple and definitive, your body temperature, the measurement of inflation is and can only be socially defined and executed. As John says, if used cars are heavily weighted in the Consumer Price Index, which is a primary survey used to measure inflation, then the price of used cars skyrocketing, such as for a shortage of microchips, will increase overall inflation. But for the majority who have no plans to buy a used car, this particular inflation means little to them in real terms. However, this is the same inflation used to stoke fear in everyone, regardless what they want to buy or not buy. Further still, inflation is a measurement. The idea of reducing inflation, such as by the Fed raising interest rates, is targeting something that serves as nothing more than a distraction from the real world and the underlying problems the measurement is referring to. Targeting low inflation is very similar to targeting a low deficit. We must reduce the deficit. This is targeting a measurement and sacrificing those at the bottom in the real world in order to do it. This is an example of Goodhart's law. When a measurement becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measurement. The difference is that a deficit is never inherently a bad thing, where inflation is generally genuinely referring to a real problem in the real world. However, targeting only the inflation measurements itself almost always results in the underlying problems being ignored and exacerbated. So basically, is your goal to lower the temperature on the thermometer, or is your goal to not be sick? And now, let's get right back to my conversation with John Harvey. Enjoy. It implies that something is outside of human control. Yeah, uh, or, or at least in the short run. In the short run, we can't do anything about it. And causing a recession, A, will technically lower inflation because it will lower average prices, but it ain't solved anything. It's made mm-hmm. things worse. Not mm-hmm. only, are the, pri- not, not only are the, is the price of oil higher in 1974 than it was in 73, but now I got less income. All right, so so that's stupid. We don't try to cause a recession. Now, so let's go back to demand pull inflation then, which is what you originally were talking about. And that is if you, demand is rising so high that the supply can't keep up, at least not in the short run. So what? That's a great problem to have. You know, I, 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 six models have asked me out for a date this weekend, and I can only go out with one of them. Uh, yeah, that that's a real problem there, bub. And so <laughs> I think you can probably figure that out. So why would we want to – and, of course, it goes back to the neoclassical view that the economy fixes itself. Why would we want to cause a recession? And as you pointed out, demand pull inflation creates appropriate – this is one of the few times the market does something useful, all right? It creates appropriate signals to entrepreneurs because mm. 
all prices don't go up everywhere. It's going to be in certain sectors. Like, let's say there's a housing boom and the price of bricks goes up. So we cause a recession to stop it because that would stop it. Uh, it would stop the average price. It, the bricks would still be higher than they were before. All right. But it would it would lower the average prices or we could do this instead. Let the price of bricks go up and signal to the market that people want more bricks and then it would be more profitable. And so entrepreneurs would make more bricks. That's what they wanted. This uh, w- when we started with COVID, do you remember how hard it was to get? Well, you probably weren't 3D printing at the time. Uh, I needed alcohol to clean the stuff for the 3D printing and you couldn't find it. Uh, or if you did, it was at you know exorbitant prices because at that point we thought maybe uh, COVID could be spread you know from surfaces. That'd be a good. Uh, there's there's so, a drinking joke somewhere in there. Oh well, and we get right to that. Uh, <laughs> you know, and that's funny you bring that up. Uh, early on in COVID, we were trying to have some happy hours on Zoom, and the novelty wore off pretty quickly. Uh, that really, <laughs> at first, it was kind of fun. Now I was like, eh, but uh, let's just drink by ourselves. Um, so anyway, you couldn't get alcohol anywhere. The price has skyrocketed. Oh no, let's cause a recession to stop that. No, they didn't do that. All right. In part because COVID had already started a recession for us, but um, they didn't do that. They allowed the price to go up as you should in those those circumstances, which induced other firms, including those who made scotch and whiskey and so forth to make alcohol. Yeah. Just use sort of the the rubbing alcohol stuff for the the medicinal alcohol. Mm. That's what we wanted. We wanted more alcohol. It caused the price to go up which caused there to be more alcohol. Mm. Um, now, if it's a, if it's something that everyone desperately needs, then certainly the government could help out, and, you know, control prices or, or subsidies or whatever. But I, the, I can't think of a situation with demand pull inflation wherein it would be appropriate to stop it from happening because it is, it's not all prices at once. And here's another example. The OPEC oil embargo, the, the, everyone suddenly wanted the ceiling fan. And so the demand for oh. ceiling fans went way up. Well, okay. So that induces firms to make more ceiling fans, and that's what they wanted. Hmm. So, yeah, um, the way we do money – and I, I was, I'm doing a summer class right now at Macroeconomics, and I just did my inflation lecture a couple of days ago, and I always feel so uncomfortable talking to a class about this because I'm wondering, are they thinking, this guy's insane? Uh, Harvey must be insane. He's saying that what the Federal Reserve does makes no sense whatsoever. Hmm. And that is what I'm saying. And, and uh, it, it, it took a long time for me to get out of the mindset of, of the way I was actually trained um, and a lot of reading of post-Keynesian stuff. And, and, and by the way, the first time you read something that's really different, it doesn't completely take over your brain. Uh, I'm sure people out there who, you know, first learning about MMT are like, well, that's kind of weird. I, that can't be right. And then you sort of roll it over in your head over and over and you begin to realize, no, that makes a lot more sense. And so that's how I kind of came around to, to this view that I now feel embarrassed to tell my students about is that the Fed is doing nothing but harm. And one more thing, uh, and I'll shut up on this. As you were pointing out too, uh, we have this sort of knee-jerk response to situations like now where there's a, a relative labor shortage. Oh, no, let's stop it. I, I seem to recall both candidates for president talking about the disappearance of the middle class. Hmm. Well, that's how we get them back, you idiots. We allow the wages to go up, all right? Hmm. Uh, inflation hmm. caused by, and this is where we go back to the Emancipation Proclamation, in, inflation caused by social justice is okay. Uh, so anyway, I'll shut up there. 
You're reminding me, the New York Times just had a, the, the editorial board said that, you know, uh, yeah, student debt is really burdensome for so many people, but but we really shouldn't cancel it because that would be more harmful. And one of their arguments was, if we cancel student debt, that would make it more difficult for some for some to achieve prosperity. What? So yeah. taking away their debt would not be a way for them to having, you know, prosperous. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, so what you're making me think of is actually that they don't want these signals. They want to just do what they want to do. So they want to get rid of the signals so they don't have to do what the signals tell them to do. I think that that has to be part of it. So, I mean, you don't even have to respond to that, but yeah. they want to get rid of these, th- these market signals, this demand, this increase in demand is a signal to do something. And they have to respond to that signal, you know, in order to make it go away. So they don't want to have to do that particular thing. So they'd rather just make the signal go away. So anyway, I, I find that interesting. Yeah, and I, I, we'll come back to that later because I know you have some uh, questions that will be appropriate to that to that thought right there. So I'll hold off on my comment. Okay, great. Hold on a second. Uh, all right, so here we go. Uh, there was a recent article, a really good article, I think, by David Dayen. Uh, in the New York Times called Larry Summers Shares the Blame for Inflation. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, So there is a, a really interesting quote in that article. For decades, economists like Mr. Summers advanced policies like globalization, deregulation, and markets that valued efficiency over competition. They promised that these trends would deliver lower prices, and they did for a time, but they also left the system vulnerable. The gamble of such a system paid off for a while. In 2005, Mr. Summers' longtime collaborator Jason Furman best explained the philosophy when he pronounced retail behemoth Walmart, quote, There is little dispute that Walmart's price reductions have benefited the 120 million American workers employed outside of the retail sector, Mr. Furman wrote. That seemed to override everything else. Low wages, competitors driven out of business, manufacturing jobs shipped overseas, communities hollowed out across America. The trade-off was clear. Sacrifice resiliency, wage security, and community for the promise of a $5 pack of tube socks. Right. And what it says is basically that low prices are the shiny ball used to deceive and distract people from demanding better, it, demanding better in real terms. And Sam Levy said something interesting on Twitter, I think in relation to this article, which is the logical conclusion of this is who cares if you can't afford food when TVs are so cheap? And it's, it's leveraging hedonism to distract people from real suffering from their own real suffering and from the suffering of, you know, the people that the news doesn't cover. And there's a, a, a book, I haven't read it, but the concept is, is amazing, which is amusing ourselves to death. Hmm. And uh, so something that's not stated in the article is what I found most interesting. And I, I think I am touching on it, but I think there's something deeper about it. And that is the inverse, the inverse of that argument of, you know, don't demand better, essentially, the the underlying the hidden argument is don't demand better because if you demand better there will you there won't be these lower prices we want you to have lower prices because that's most important the inverse of that argument is not if you demand better there will be higher prices the inverse argument is if you demand better in real terms better wages better environment better whatever community there will be inflation not raised mm-hmm. prices but inflation yeah so so 
I, I, I find that absolutely fascinating. That that inflation is the shiny ball used to scare people out of demanding better, and I th- I think that's accurate. But I think I, I, I feel like there's a, a more elegant way of saying it or there's something more to it. But can you can you address that the opposite side of that argument that inflation is the shiny ball to scare people out of demanding better? Yeah, that, that, that fits exactly with what we were just talking about with inflation and the fact that the Fed you know slams the brakes on um, every time it looks like wages might go up, uh, which is precisely what we need. And what is it that they use to justify this policy? You know, it's just like when MMT people say, what if the government said, instead of saying, uh, we're going to try to have you know, a, a government budget surplus, what if instead they said, we're going to try to drain income from the private sector, which is the opposite side of the coin? Well, likewise with this, what if instead of saying uh, right now, uh, Jerome Powell, uh, instead of saying, well, we're going to raise interest rates in order to try to reduce inflation, what if instead he said, we're going to try to raise interest rates in order to stop wages of the, of the poorest people in the country from going up, which is exactly what, what they're doing. And so obviously he's not going to be very successful pushing a policy if he said, you know, well, what we're trying to do right now is to make sure that the people who are the poorest Americans uh, and who have been pushed out of the middle class and so forth, we're trying to make sure they don't get more money. That's not going to be very successful. Uh, instead, they're going to say, well, you know, it might cause inflation. And I know we're, we're going to get to this later, but I honestly think a lot of that is not conspiratorial. I think he just believes it. But anyway, we'll get to that later. Um, but yeah, th- I think that's right, that we have used the threat of inflation to stop, uh, to, to contribute to the income distribution problems uh, that we have now that have been evolving since Reagan Thatcher, at least. Right. Okay. All right. So the next one is just a simple question. So, so I'm going to state the main argument that critics make that is quoted in your paper. And that is that the concern is that, quote, MMT inspired policies will cause high rates of price inflation, which will in turn lower the international value of the domestic currency, perhaps catastrophically. And we're going to get into the details of that. But my first question is, is just simply, is there a difference between inflation and price inflation? No. There's Same not. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Simple. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's the core critique. MMT inspired policies will cause high rates of price inflation, which will in turn lower the international value of the domestic currency, perhaps catastrophically. There are three arguments, as I understand it, that this is based on. Number one is the false assumption that we are currently at or soon will be at full employment. Number two is a fantastical theory of exchange rate determination. And number three is just a terrible mischaracterization of MMT. So I'm going to, I want to address each of these. I'm going to start with the mischaracterization of MMT, which mm-hmm. I think is pretty simply addressed, but I'm just curious if you have any yeah. further thoughts about it. And that is just simply, it's the lazy argument that MMT says that we can and should spend endlessly on hedonistic, simple luxuries because there's no consequences for doing so. That's like, you know, kind of the lazy argument about it, I think. And that, but the, re, but the reality is, is that MMT shows that if a government has total control over its currency, it's not burdened by external debt and, uh, and doesn't peg and whatever right. uh, offer exchanges, then withholding what is desperately needed purely because of anything, withholding anything for right. purely financial reasons is simply invalid. And 
that argument is often used to, you know, obscure more unpalatable reasons for not doing so. And it, and a really good response I've seen to this is simply that it, it regarding the job guarantee. And, and uh, I heard this yeah. from Neil, Neil Wilson, and that is, okay, so if you think the job guarantee is bad, then let's implement it and see, because if you're right, then no one will show up. No one will show up and that's fine. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's there if people want to show up and, you know, so, and okay. So we're going to talk about this conspiracy thing in, in a couple of questions later, but, right. but um, the truth is that anything that threatens the power of those already on top is by definition harmful for all. And, and I have a daddy rule of games with my 12 year old. <laughs> and that is if he wins anything, it's only because he broke the rules. And if I win, it's only because he followed the rules. And so I, you know, I think that that's kind of the, how, you know, this, that's the mischaracterization of MMT. And it seems pretty simple. I'm curious if there's, if, you know, if there's anything you can add, you want to add to that. Right. Well, first of all, you're, we're pretty much going over my talk at the Levy Institute. <laughs> oh, really? Well, yeah, it's going to be on exchange rates. Um, oh, okay. And uh, in fact, I'll back up here in a minute and tell you how this article or this chapter even got written in the first place. But no, the, it's so frustrating. This, this MMT, uh, they're just going to keep on spending forever because there's no cost to it. And I was trying to explain to a student the other day that what if you found a gas station where uh, it was free to you know get air to put in your tires? We have we have one nearby where you can do that. Do you see people with exploded tires all over that parking <laughs> lot? You know that uh, hey the air was free. Yeah yeah let's just keep putting air in this thing until it blow. You know it's, it's free. I, I hate to stop. Um, uh-huh. I said, no, you have a target. Oh yeah, it was to a student. That's right. Uh, because I had a question on the exam that said, okay, you know, uh, post Keynesians don't believe that there is any you know, limit to how large the, the, the national debt can be, how, how large do they want it to be. And what they're supposed to say is, well, until we hit full employment. And so that is the same as the 32, you know, when you open your car door and you look and it says 32 pounds per square inch is the, mm. is the pressure on your tire. Guess what? That's when you stop. All right. So the, the people who are saying that MMT is going to cause this terrible inflation because they'll keep spending and spending and spending must also have trouble, uh, you know, when they go put air in their tires at the <laughs> gas stations where the, the, the air is free because, well, it's free. Uh, I could do this forever. So, well, no, you idiot. <laughs> there, there's a target in mind. So, yeah, no, I, it, it, and that one is so frustrating because and, and the wonderful thing about the job guarantee is how it is programmed, programmed. Uh, well, there, going back to the to, to the air and the tire thing, there's one gas station here in town where you plug in on the pump or on, on the air 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 pump thing. You plug in how what your PSI you want it to be. So I put in 32 and it stops. Right. So it's mm-hmm. already programmed to keep me from blowing up my tire. And so is a job guarantee. If you know it, 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 we're only spending in deficit unless there's some other issue going on to the point of full employment. And so, no, that's absolutely right. And, it, and it's so frustrating that they, you know, pick one little piece out of the uh, uh, theory and ignore all the rest of the stuff. And the, the nice thing is that in reverse, we don't have to do that. I'll take your whole damn theory and it's still stupid. Uh, but <laughs> they're just picking little pieces out of ours. And if I may say something really quick about uh, uh, playing games w- with your kids, and this is a uh, horrible, uh, traumatic memory of mine from my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um I would explain again to my parents, yeah, 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 whatever. And so now we're playing and I'm winning. 
well, he's making up the rules as he goes along. That's what they would say. I said, no, I didn't. I tried to explain that, and you said to just keep on going. Anyway, so I, I still, to this day, it's, it's horrific. I, uh, I don't know how I'm able to even uh, interact with my parents anymore. So, <laughs> um, I mean, it's kind of really silly. It's like the job guarantee, we must hire someone that doesn't exist. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, all right. So next question. Um Assumption number two of those three is that a com- is a completely fantastical theory of exchange rate determination. And our whole previous interview was on that. So we're not going to go over that again, but I will have a couple of follow-ups regarding it. And the first one is uh, an exchange rate is inherently a relationship. Which side of the scissors did the cutting? I love that analogy. Which side yeah. of the scissors did the cutting? The US dollar can't just depreciate. It can only do against another currency like the euro. So- if they what they say is MMT inspired policies will lower the international value of the domestic currency perhaps catastrophically, it implies that the U.S.'s relationship to every other country on the planet, roughly speaking, will sour catastrophically, which seems silly to me. Yeah. And a currency catastrophically depreciating against supposedly all other countries also implies that the United States government itself and the companies or you know the most of the companies within its borders will also fail catastrophically in real terms which also seems ridiculous so it seems impossible like this it seems impossible to make a blanket assertion about a currency depreciating in general like that without also looking into basically the conditions in every other country that they're talking about so that's kind of my vague, yeah. brief summary of that concept. So, does that make sense? And uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and if I may, I think this is an appropriate spot to back up to talk about why I ended up writing this in the first place. Why I ended up at, at speaking at the Levy Institute next month. You know, I've known Randy Ray and I got our PhDs about the same time, so we've known each other. You know, uh, gosh, over thirty years, I guess, and. He used to assign my, my exchange rate stuff in, in his class. And in fact, he even put together a volume at one point of, of various readings. And he asked me if, if you know, he could use one of my uh, exchange rate articles in there. So, so he's always thought of me as an exchange rate guy, which is quite right. And then I guess this really started with, with you know, you and, and – so did I do the Australian talk before I talked to you about exchange rates? Yes. Okay. It must have been the Australian MMT talk that somebody actually asked me about my exchange rate stuff. And I was like, why do you want to know about that? That seems awful boring. And, uh, but actually the title, the title of that talk with Australia was like horrifically boring something. Right, right, right. Yeah. Cause I did, I want, you know, as Melanie always mutters to herself as she walks through the house, always set your, your expectations low and you won't be disappointed. I'm not sure <laughs> what she's talking about, but nevertheless. Um, and so and it, it turned out to be quite popular. Oh, by the way, uh, I have done one other interview since I've been chair this was the only one I was willing to do. The Australian government's Treasury Department had me speak to them about my theory of exchange rate determination, which I thought, well, I can't turn that down. I was nervous as heck because, you know, they're all neoclassicals, of course, and it went quite well. But um, th- th- that Australian talk led to all kinds of stuff, right? So coming up to this this chapter. Oh, the, I, the, the Treasury Department or whoever you just said heard you're horrifically boring and that's how they found you is that what you're saying right right wow, uh, that's great that's yeah great. yeah in fact uh, lachlan um mccall he was working there and suggested that that you know i speak there 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, that was a re- really great experience. Then I got an email after that talk uh, from Yeva Nersisian, and uh, she asked if I would contribute a chapter to a book. And apparently she and Randy Ray are, are, are editing it on MMT and exchange rates. Oh. And this was supposed to be aimed towards uh, sort of your, your educated uh, layperson. And I said, sure. So I, I wrote it up. And I, I, again, I thought this isn't very interesting, <laughs> but I wrote it up. And then I had to do a couple of revisions. Randy, you know, set back comments. And he said, this is really good. And I thought, oh, well, well thank you. I, I didn't think it was all that interesting. But, you know, but I guess I guess if you do exchange rate stuff all the time, I don't know, maybe you say, well, you also forget what other people do and don't understand about concepts when you've been involved with it for a long time. So so anyway, I said, okay, great. So, th- so that's that's forthcoming in a, an MMT book that she and Randy are doing. Mm-hmm. Then I get an email from Scotland, <laughs> and uh, they they said, uh, you know, w- would you contribute a chapter to our book on uh, MMT uh, about exchange rates? This, this is the chapter we're we're talking about right now uh, okay. on exchange rates and uh, MMT, and we want it to be technical. I know this is a question you have coming up later, but I just want to mention why this came up at all. Why, why do I have two chapters forthcoming on the same topic? They, we want this one to be technical because we want it to be something that neoclassicals can't just dismiss as, eh, it's just, this is just a blog post is all it is. And so that actually sounded kind of fun to me. I was like, that's really a challenge. I need to build a more formal model of these things. So uh, that's what I did. I ended up building this this you know formal model, and uh, again, it went through a couple. Oh, and Randy ends up editing that volume too. They, they asked if I would edit it, and I said, "I'm department chair right now. If you absolutely need me to, I will, but I don't want to." So anyway, <laughs> uh, Randy, uh, thankfully, I found out later, stepped in and and took over uh, editorship of that particular volume. So all of a sudden, I hadn't been doing exchange rate stuff in years. All of a sudden, I, I've I've got the talk in Australia, the talk to the Australian Treasury Department, the talk with you. I might have done one with, 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 with Christian as well. I don't remember. Um, two chapters. And now, uh, you know, I got invited to, to speak at the Levy Institute at their summer workshop. And, and, and this was the topic they wanted. So this is why there's this, all of a sudden uh, I find myself back into uh, exchange rate determination. And so, you know, your, your, your immediate question was, uh, is it really realistic to imagine that a currency could catastrophically depreciate anyway? And yes, it is, um, but not for the reasons that the MMT attackers are are implying. It is possible because it's happened. I mean, it, it happened to Mexico. It happened to Thailand, as, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but these Zimbabwe, were all, all the major hyperinflations. Uh, well, no, not. In, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In that case. But yeah, but in Mexico and Thailand. The irony was that Thailand was the fastest growing economy on the planet for the previous, I don't know, decade or something like that. And then all of a sudden, their currency just collapsed. And I say all of a sudden, it, it, I can tell you exactly why it happened. But, um, but it was all financial capital flows. You're right. To imagine that, and I guess I'm going to have to put in some exchange rate determination stuff here. And, and this kind of jumps to your, to your next uh, question about purchasing power parity. But uh, I'll just say a little bit of that right here then. Uh, so the neoclassical view is that exchange rates are primarily driven by international trade flows. Well, international trade flows don't change catastrophically. They don't. 
So therefore, an exchange rate can't change catastrophically. However, in fact, exchange rates are driven by financial capital flows, and those can change catastrophically. Because they're essentially uh, just electronic signals. Yeah, and, and, and it's um, international investors' forecasts. And so, you know, if you go into mm. Keynes's fundamental uncertainty stuff, um, when things start to go south, everyone says to themselves, you know what? I kind of thought I knew what I was doing, but let's just get the hell out of here. Maybe I didn't. Uh, so, um, so it is absolutely possible. But, you know, y- your question was based on uh, could it depreciate catastrophically for real reasons? Uh, no, it can't. Uh, but you, you can get hot capital flows and, you know, and, and investors suddenly decide, oh, my God, let's get the hell out of here. Uh, and it can happen then. So as far as the financial market is concerned, yes, it can happen. But so far as uh, perhaps uh, underlying trade flows or, uh, as you suggested, you know, a company suddenly failing catastrophically, if that's what it was really based on, then no, it couldn't happen. But that's not what it's really based on. And I think maybe yeah, if you go on to the next question, I can explain more of that. Sure. So, yeah. okay. So basically, given their game, their set of rules, it's <laughs> it's nonsense because yes. they're only talking yeah. about trade. They're assuming only trade of real goods and services, not financial flows. And in that worldview, the, the catastrophic collapse of the currency is unrealistic. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, yeah, there, there's, there's, there's some other subtleties in there, but I think that's basically right. Okay, great. So I'm going to ask this, and this is obviously going to be influenced by the next question, but I'm yeah. just going to leave it as it, as I originally wrote it, which is, okay, so again, a completely fantastical theory of exchange rate determination. So last year in our previous interview, which was indeed after Christian's, you spoke with Christian, because mm. um, I, I, I saw our, I saw my interview with you on this topic as not an introduction. Like I was, I oh, like, yeah. in the, in my intro to that episode, I said, this is not an introduction. You should really look, watch the horrifically boring one. And you should really <laughs> listen to Christian before you listen to this, because it was like kind of follow-up questions. So by the way, I never listened to anything I've done. Um, you, you, in your email to me said, this is something that didn't come up here because you just wanted to know the, the uh, source of a, of a, of a, um, a quote that I had, mm-hmm. but uh, you said around the 27 minute mark of, of this interview. And I thought, oh man, I got to listen to me talk. So, <laughs> so it was very painful. I had to go through and listen to me. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, this is one of the reasons why I don't remember what I said in various podcasts. I never go back and listen. I, I don't want to hear it. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I said, oh, that, that John Harvey guy sounds like an idiot. So yeah, I don't, I don't want to listen to myself talk. <laughs> okay. Even though apparently I enjoy talking. So. <laughs> um. All right. So, so last year we, you know, we, we really went into exchange rate. The whole topic was exchange rate determination. Mm-hmm. So, um, for, and, and the, one of the big insights that I got from that conversation was that mainstream economics, which is basically free market ideology requires the assumption of full employment that we're there now or soon will be that in turn, in order for full employment to be always true in turn requires the assumption of balanced trade. And I wrote a post on it, which there's a link in the show notes that was inspired by by that. But what I realized later was that the assumption of full employment doesn't just require balanced trade. It does require balanced trade, but that's a kind of more narrow view because the more the broad, more broad way to say it is that it requires no leakages of any kind. And that is because if any money is not spent at domestic companies, if it's if it's saved, if it's invested, if it's spent overseas, 
uh, pay for taxes, whatever it is, paying off debt, I guess, anything that's not spent domestically will result in less than full full employment, less than full demand, which which will in turn result in some worker being let go somewhere, which jeopardizes their full employment assumption, which jeopardizes their existence. So your work highlights the fact that mainstream, I, this doesn't feel totally the most elegant way to say it, but just it's enough to get you to address this, which is yeah. mainstream deals with that by simply ignoring the biggest leakage of all. They just completely ignore financial flows, which is the exchange of financial assets, as opposed to trade, which is the exchange of, fin- of real goods and services. Financial assets is 90 to 97% of all international transactions, according to your work, or, or whatever, the statistics you quote. And they essentially assume that the only possible transaction is is, is uh, trade. And and that that the other stuff, the ninety percent of ninety seven percent, is just you know background noise. So, in addition, uh, your paper describes how they assume purchasing power parity. That given purchasing power parity, this is why the, the currency will depreciate. And that purchasing power parity, I very roughly, is just that every major product will have the same price the world over. Obviously you know, ignoring exchange rates, but the, every major product will have the same price in every country as if that's like a law. And and may may interject right there. People may be familiar with the Big Mac index that the economist does. And it's Mm -hmm. based on purchasing power parity. The idea is that Big Macs, once you translate the currencies should be the same price all over the planet. Which is just, okay. So, all right. They're not, by the way, even by their own calculations, they're not, but anyway. Okay. So the overall assumptions being made by these critics is that people, uh, it seems to me that people don't behave like human beings, but like robots. And also assume that they're these simplistic assumptions are always true. And therefore, you know, like nothing can ever go wrong. And that's the natural state of the world is these simplistic, rigid assumptions and daring to consider anything else is disturbing the natural order of things. So the real underlying meta reasoning is that were this reality, the reality of exchange rates, understood by you know, the masses, it would reveal very uncomfortable truths about those on top, which would threaten their power. And there's a really interesting concept, which I only know basically the headline of, by Michel Foucault, which is that truth by def- – I think it's by Michel Foucault – is that truth by definition is what increases your power or preserves your power. So if, if – your theory of exchange rate determination, and if MMT were right, it would be bad for them, and therefore it has to be wrong. So can you elaborate on the absurdity of purchasing power parity and the broader critique that they're – all these assumptions that they're doing? And especially the idea that prices are the same the whole world over implies that there's some kind of anchor. And what in the world would that anchor be? I, I it seems obvious that there is none. That obviously someone can choose to raise prices. Does that does that mean they're disturbing the natural order of things, or does that mean that everybody else is going to raise prices because they did? Like, what's the the anchor? What would they say the anchor is? Which I think is just kind of an absurd absurdity. But anyway, so there. That's go. Right. <laughs> well, there, there's tons of stuff in here. Uh, let's see. Um, let me start with the idea of of leakages. 
because there are, there are always leakages, all right? But I, I think what you mean is net leakages, because we also have injections. I, and maybe I'm, I'm assuming the definitions that we usually use in economics for injections and leakages. Injections are things like government spending, which, you know, we're all very much in favor of here with the MMT stuff, exports, um, and investment, which is the, you know, the, the private sector variable I, I pay the most attention to. So those are the three injections. In fact, this is how I start my intermediate macro class. I say, look, you know, we focus first on injections versus leakages, uh, injections into the income stream. What are they? And none of these things depend on current income. The government can spend even with no tax revenue, right? And that's the, and, and firms can invest even with no current income because they can borrow the money. The um, financial sector can, can create credit for them. And exports depend on income, but not ours. It depends on the other country's income, right? So, so those are the three injections, the three kinds of spending in the macro economy that are not dependent on our current level of income. Um, leakages are savings. So if anybody saves money, then that pulls it out of the income stream. And it means exactly what you were saying earlier, that the economy would contract. Um, Imports, any money we spend abroad is a leakage uh, that we earn this money here in the United States, but then we spend it on something Chinese. And so that tends to cause the economy to contract. And um, taxes, taxes cause the economy to contract. It's money we pull out and we don't have to use it. We can just, you know, well, all we do is, is use it to, to retire uh, debt, right? So the injections are I, G, and X, investment, government spending, and exports. And the leakages are S, T, and M, savings, taxes, and imports. Mm. They're all uh, – now, when we model this kind of stuff, we say, well, they're always equal, all right? The injections and leakages always end up exactly the same, so there are no net leakages. However, they don't have to end up being equal at the same point at, at, as we are at full employment. Okay, and picture it this way. This is what, I, this is what oh. I'm using. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, okay. So picture a bucket. Uh, and a bucket that has a hole in it, right? So there's your leakages. And it has a, a, a faucet over the top. There's your injections. And then the water level is the current level of GDP. Only thing is, there's a certain water level that gives us full employment. So if we, now, whatever we do to the tap on the top, the hole will end up leaking exactly as much. It'll reach an equilibrium. But imagine if you turn up the tap a little bit, It'll create more water pressure and more water will leak out of the uh, out of the hole. In fact, if you turn the tap up all the way, then the water will just pour out of the top. Um, in fact, let's say that the let's say that the very top of the bucket is full employment. Why have I never explained it that way before, John? Okay, the very, uh, uh, I'm adjusting my analogy as we go along here. Um, that let's say the top of the bucket is full employment, and then the hole in the bucket is like maybe halfway down. All right. So if I turn the tap off completely then nothing's going to leak out of the hole anymore. Eventually, the water will fall down until it's just below the hole and just stop. Well, okay, so leakages and injections are exactly the same because there's no water coming in and there's no water going out, but we're not at full employment because they are not equal at the overall level that gives us full employment. You have to turn up the tap. And, you know, and what I end up explaining in class, I start it with investment is the only tap. And then I say, all right, well, but investment's unstable. What are we going to do? And that's where you have your G tap for government spending. You have a second one up there, right? So you know, that gets into the MMT stuff. But regardless uh, of how much water you put into that bucket, eventually the injection and leakage will be identical. 
uh, potentially because you've put so much water in it that it's pouring over the top. But one or the other, they end up being exactly equal. So injections and leakages are always moving towards equality, but not necessarily equality at the level that generates full employment. That's why we need to make sure that the, the GTAF is not being uh, hindered by people saying we need to balance the budget and stuff like that. All right, so that, that was the first thing that, that occurred to me. And we also would not count the financial flows as being leakages in that context. They are. Real? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because the financial flows are what is financing the injections, all right? Uh, how are you financing G? Well, we don't have to because we have a you know sovereign currency and so forth. How are you financing I? Oh, well, that could be from Chinese and, you know, here we are in Zimbabwe and the Chinese are bringing money in to help, you know, build a, a school or whatever. So th those flows, the financial flows, I guess, and the way I break it down in class is this. I, I, I do what I just said about the bucket and so forth. And we talk a lot about investment and how unstable investment is and what creates the business cycle. Then the next topic is, okay, financial sector, right? And, and the financial sector is theoretically, you know, financing these these projects that are not de currently dependent on income and it's unstable too all right so it's it's unstable as, as well so um let's put it this way the the money in the financial assets is simply just part of our savings um it's money we're not spending right now so it's already a leakage to start with even if we don't send it to another country now having another place to invest might make it more attractive to not spend the money currently but but yeah, we, we wouldn't count that as a as a leakage, though. Hmm. Yeah, so I think I've made the main point there that that the injections and leakages are always equal theoretically. Well, they have to be logically; they have to be. Uh, it's it's kind of the same inescapable accounting that we talk about in MMT. They have to be equal, and I, I can go through the math, but um, I won't. <laughs> but they don't have to be equal at the level that generates full employment. And okay. the real question becomes. What the hell is that money doing that's floating around the world uh, in, in the financial market? Is it really contributing to actual production of goods and services and employment? Or is it just people parking their savings somewhere? And, and you know, the savings, by the way, is part of the hole in the bucket, right? So if we save more, the hole gets bigger. And unless we offset that with the G tap going up or the I tap going up, then the economy contracts. So that, you know, that. Now I guess now let me get around to to purchasing power parity. Let me ask. Let me ask a follow. Yeah, up yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Before you do that. Yeah. I'm okay. So financial flows are not a leakage. Are they not? You said you said two things, which both of which I don't understand. Mm -hmm. um, one is that you said something like it's already a leakage before it's used in to purchase or something like that, and then the other thing was that. Is it is it not a leakage because it's an even exchange of our currency for their currency? Obviously, it's exchange rate, but basically, we're getting the yeah. same amount. We're at that moment, we're getting the same amount in, in their currency as equal to our currency. Well, maybe this would be a better way for me to explain it. That if you picture the bucket again, and let's imagine that the, that the hole in the bucket is only savings. All right, so so savings is is pouring out down there. Yeah, but where does that end up? In the U.S. stock market, in your bank account, uh, invested in Mexico. Uh, so you know it was already a leakage to start with. It was already it was already coming out of that hole down the bottom, and the financial flows are just determining where people end up parking that that spending power they decided not to use. 
Is that? I understand sense? the concept, but no, it doesn't feel like like it, it's spare money. I mean, I guess it's it's spare money. So where am I gonna put it? I get I. I, I don't know what the questions are, so I'm yeah, not going to sort of go, well, but I find that very interesting. Yeah, the financial sector is a place where we park our savings, where, you know, the, the, the money from my uh, retirement account, um, they're trying to decide if they can, you know, how much they can earn from the money I don't want to spend. Oh, so it's basically they've already put it in savings and it's yes. basically it's an invest. They've already put it in an investment and it's basically what kind of investment do I want? And financial flows is to, or you know, whatever, buying uh, an asset of uh, from another country, a financial asset from another. Yeah, country. That's, that's, yeah that's a lot of another kind of investment. Uh, yeah, financial investment. Um, it's uh, another kind of fi- yeah, financial investment. So. All right. So what, so I want to say this again. So. Yeah. I'm rich. I already have money in an investment. I might as well use that to buy some euros, European stocks or European whatever. Yes. So it's just it's all okay. That's what you mean by already a leakage. I've already put it in. I've already have extra money, and yes. it's just what do I want to do with that extra money? And it remains as an investment, just a different kind. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, it, it, I always I cite these stats a lot for my students that the top twenty percent of Americans spend sixty percent of their income, which means they save forty. And the bottom 80% spend 95 to 100% of their income. So it's, it's where rich people are parking their money. So it was already coming out of the hole in the bucket. Okay. And then the financial flows around the world is that, that leakage that was already coming out from the savings you know, hole in the bucket, trying to, you know, people trying to find a higher rate of return somewhere. Okay. All right. All yeah. right. That makes sense. No, yeah. I, I don't want to spend time on what I'm about to say, but I just kind of want to say where this leads my thinking, which is so – Domestically, we're talking about leakages that, you know, in full employment is is influenced by leakages. So internationally with exchange rate determination, I think I'm I'm saying kind of the right kinds of concepts, but the term leakage has nothing to do with it. They're ignoring something, but it's just, okay, all right. That's exactly right. I don't know where that leads, but that's interesting. Okay, so- All right, so let's go on to what you wanted to bring up that that uh, that I had not oh, thought of. Uh, let me attack oh, purchasing, purchasing power. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, I, um, I have. I went over this in in my Australia talk. Um, I I got this. It's downstairs right now. But I have this wonderful neoclassical book on exchange rate theory, and I used to use it before I'd written all my stuff on exchange rates. It was the only thing I had. I would cover this you know, a neoclassical exchange rate book. And it's a very, very well-written and a very honest book. And the first thing that strikes you is that it isn't one exchange rate theory. It's like six because they can't make up their mind which ones work, right? Chapter two. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah, exactly. In, in my book, yeah, it ends up being chapter two. And, and I saw, so, yeah, I, I pulled a lot of that out of, out of this wonderful textbook. Uh, and that one, one of the things that makes it wonderful is at the end of every chapter, he stops and says, uh, Lawrence Copeland is the author. He stops and says, okay, let's look at how this has you know, performed empirically. And at the end of every chapter, to summarize, he says, not well. <laughs> mm. And so, I, I don't know, when, when I was given the talk for the Australian Treasury Department and then for the Australian MMT group, I, I kept emphasizing, imagine the student who is working through this highly technical book all excited about learning, you know, learning about uh, exchange rates. And at the end of every chapter, you get this, 
Well, it would have been nice if it worked, wouldn't it? In fact, I, in fact, I have the quote right here, and I'm giving away one of my slides from the Levy Institute. This is from the Lawrence Copeland book, 2008 edition, page 71. Uh, and this is, we can summarize the evidence by saying that on the face of it, there appears to be no obvious tendency towards purchasing power parity. So great. So I, I've read this chapter, and there's next to no support for it. Uh, and also, uh, same, same book, page 78. We have seen that there are, and listen to this. This is fascinating. We have seen that there are persuasive reasons for supposing that, in principle at least, purchasing power parity ought to be a good approximation of the truth. Let me, what the hell does that mean? We have seen that there are persuasive reasons, if you ignore 90% of the market, that purchasing power parity ought to be a good approximation of the truth. His next sentence is, unfortunately, however, the facts would appear to provide little support in the short run. And the evidence on the long run is at best mildly supportive. So this is their core theory. Of all these six exchange rate theories they go through, they, they all boil down to, in the end, trade flows. Trade flows are what determine exchange rates. Uh, certainly, capital flows are bigger than trade flows, but um, capital flows are just there to finance the trade flows, is their, is their idea, or their white noise. right? And so by their own admission, they don't work very well. And, and, and to me, the answer why is very simple. And that is, uh, as, as you have pointed out, that the actual currency market in, in 2018, the World Trade Organization estimated that world trade was $25.3 trillion, right? So, so all of the goods and services bought and sold across the planet were $25.3 trillion, Um Currency market activity was $1,650 trillion. So that's 25 versus $1,650 trillion. So what the hell was all that money doing? That's 1.5% of all the currency trade. Now, the people counter-arguing will quite appropriately say, yes, but every trade transaction might generate a covering transaction of some sort, you know, as, as people are trying to, you know, there may be several uh, exchange rate transactions per um, import or export. Okay, let's multiply it by 10. Uh, 10 seems ridiculous, but that only brings us to 15% uh, of, of, of all trade, of all currency activity has to do with trade. So that's why it's a, they, they've struggled with this for years. It's like they can't figure out what they, they, they can't give up on it. Yeah, I don't know. That, that's enough on, on purchasing power parity, I think. Well, then, let me just ask. All right, so, so two, two things. One is just simply an observation, which is like they seem to want to pretend that it's empirical when it's obviously not. Like they, they want the legitimacy of so-called of, of empiricism.
today's part two in a six-part series with Texas Christian University economics professor and cowboy economist John Harvey. The first three parts are hosted by me, the final three by MNT researcher, Texas lawyer, and my previous guest, Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan and John talk about how MMT can apply to nations outside the U.S. using Russia as an example, and also some of the core theoretical and ideological differences between MMTers and mainstream economists, focusing on a recent critique of MMT by Drew Metz and Feister. You can hear my own interview with Jonathan in episodes 106 and 107. Today in part two, John and I continue our conversation about his chapter in the upcoming book called Modern Monetary Theory, Key Insights, Leading Thinkers. The book will be published by the UK-based Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies, or GIMS. It's edited by L. Randall Ray and GIMS and is scheduled for a January 2023 release. John is one of 15 authors. His chapter is called Modern Monetary Theory, the UK, and Pound Sterling. It addresses the following criticism of NMT, and this is a quote from the chapter. NMT-inspired policies will cause high rates of price inflation, which will in turn lower the international value of a domestic currency, perhaps catastrophically. This conversation discusses the three major false assumptions underlying this criticism. Surprisingly, however, the main insight I take from this conversation with John is a much clearer understanding of inflation in general. As promised in the intro to part one, here is that insight. Inflation is not a disease or even a symptom. Rather, it's a potential measurement of some problem somewhere. Similarly, a thermometer says you have a fever. A fever means your body is fighting off something. You could take an ice bath to reduce your fever, but that will do little, if anything, to cure the underlying sickness. Further, while a thermometer measures something simple and definitive, your body temperature, the measurement of inflation is and can only be socially defined and executed. As John says, if used cars are heavily weighted in the consumer price index, which is a primary survey used to measure inflation, then the price of used cars skyrocketing, such as for a shortage of microchips, will increase overall inflation. But for the majority who have no plans to buy a used car, this particular inflation means little to them in real terms. However, this is the same inflation used to stoke fear in everyone, regardless what they want to buy or not buy. Further still, inflation is a measurement. The idea of reducing inflation, such as by the Fed raising interest rates, is targeting something that serves as nothing more than a distraction from the real world and the underlying problems the measurement is referring to. Targeting low inflation is very similar to targeting a low deficit. We must reduce the deficit. This is targeting a measurement and sacrificing those at the bottom in the real world in order to do it. This is an example of Goodhart's law. When a measurement becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measurement. The difference is that a deficit is never inherently a bad thing. 
where inflation is generally, genuinely referring to a real problem in the real world. However, targeting only the inflation measurements itself almost always results in the underlying problems being ignored and exacerbated. So basically, is your goal to lower the temperature on the thermometer, or is your goal to not be sick? And now, let's get right back to my conversation with John Harvey. Enjoy. Enjoy.